Welcome to Behind the Backline, the podcast where we chat with merchants, brands, and industry professionals in the musical instrument, pro audio, and event technology space about their products, services, industry trends, stories, and more. Join us now as we dig into the stories behind our favorite backline gear. Hey guys, welcome to episode 37 of Behind the Backline. My name is Matt Jacoby, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Dave Hillis of HJI Frequencies, uh, his own personal recording studio in Pittsburgh. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Dave. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you and kind of learn about your uh, personal history and, and experience with the music industry. And uh, it's kind of a nice spin from what we typically do because it's uh, it's more more company brands, but uh, so personal brands are just as important, um, especially this this day and age with personal branding and online reputations and whatever you're doing. It's kind of a it's kind of that thing now. So, <laughs> right. so uh, let's start off by having you tell us a little bit about who you are. Um. Dave Hillis, a producer, engineer, um, mixer, uh, also been a recording artist. Um, for uh, started out as a recording artist and moved into um, production. Uh, lucky enough to be an engineer on some of the records out of Seattle during the heyday of the '90s grunge era. So got a chance to be on uh, work on um, Pearl Jam Ten and Alice in Chains and um, numerous things like that. Uh, Owned a studio there in Seattle for a while. I mainly worked out of London Bridge Studios for about 10 to 12 years. Um, and that's where we did a lot of those recordings, kind of the classic 90s stuff. Um, and then other places too, I've got to work around, you know, around the United States. Did, worked with the Afghan Wigs um, and bands like that. So I was a recording artist for a while in Polydor and Island Records uh, with a band called Sybil Vane. And before that, in my early days, I was... Um, in the uh, start out of the band right out of high school uh, that got signed to Metal Blade Records and we were a, a, like a thrash metal band called Mace. So that's what kind of got me into recording studios. So started the ball rolling. Gotcha. So was your uh, like childhood dream to be in a band or how did they make the transition from band to engineer? Um, pretty much, you know, I just music you know like right <laughs> yeah. from the beginning you know like uh five year five years old i kind of started taking piano lessons at 10 i took guitar and then i was just you know i just had had the bug i, I actually was born in brooklyn and grew up there for a while my next door neighbor was um pete Steele from a band called typo negative and he was a few years older than me and so i would see them playing like you know like he had a band and was playing not not title negative but whatever band he had like playing beatles songs and i saw that like the live like guys with guitars playing i was like that's what i'm gonna do you know so that got me definitely in that direction as you know um as a young kid i was getting into the, the guitar player the metal stuff and all that and uh i immediately was saving um, money to go into record at these local eight track studios or whatever was around and slowly built up but by um and i i just wasn't very good at playing cover songs so i started writing my own stuff right away and um just out of sheer uh, audacity or just being naive i just anything i would record i'd go and record not knowing really what i was doing and then i just started i saw that what record labels were on the back of my favorite bands and i started sending tapes out and um and uh we got picked up like when i was 17 so 
that led me into the studios and being in there all the time. I wanted to learn more about that. And, you know, just one thing led to another um, in, in the sense of recording. And then, um, you know, after those things, different bands fizzled out or whatever. I just so I happened to do a session on some soul stuff I was working on at London Bridge, which was the only studio in Seattle at the time that had like a Neve and beautiful big room and, you know, a studio tape machine. And I recorded some stuff there and just went, wow, you know, this is really great <laughs> place. And um, <laughs> I start and then I saw the owner out just out and about uh, a few days later and he'd come up to me and say, Hey, how are your recording session going? Oh, it's fantastic. Da, 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 da. And we ended up hanging out and we went back to the studio um, once to hang out. And um, I was like, you know, just, you know, just uh, oohing and on over all the stuff and the microphones. And, and, uh, he, and he started saying, you know, that he was looking for an assistant and I'm like, you're, I'm your guy, dude, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so I came with demos and all this stuff and hounded him for a few weeks. And, um, and that was Rick Parasher and then, uh, who produced, you know, Temple of Dog and 10 and all that. And, uh, so he, you know, so basically he didn't even want to hear anything. He, he was just more, um, interested that I, I would be there. I had the drive and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I started working with him and it was Temple of the Dog was like some of the first stuff that I was around that he was finishing up at the time. And it was a coincidence too, because like I knew all those, all the guys in uh, Pearl Jam and all the bands, because we were all, you know, sharing rehearsal rooms or it was a very uh, incestuous, uh, you know, groups back there. Everybody was still finding their bands that they were in. So a lot of people were in other people's bands or we're all in, play shows together or rehearse at the same rehearsal studios or, or knew the same people or the same parties. So, um, when that was kind of happening, nobody really knew it. You know, we didn't know that it was anything was going to be as big as it was. It was exciting. That it seemed like, ah, oh, people are recording stuff was happening. Um, I mean, there was definitely a scene already going, even if it wasn't what was known to the world as grunge and all that, there was definitely a lot, you know, real happening, um, music scene now going on already till you know the major started showing up and signing everybody and i just happened to get this job at that time at studio so that's where that all kind of really exploded for me as far as being an engineer awesome now you can't really usually most people can't usually mention seattle and grunge without mentioning nirvana is that something you'd ever cross paths with or not not particularly them not really um to a, to a degree, um, they, you know, the funny thing is they really weren't a Seattle band per se. Okay. okay. <laughs> they, they, um, I mean, they were, but like they were from quite a ways outside of Seattle, uh, Aberdeen, but they'd come into Seattle obviously to play and I'd seen their shows and, um, I knew Kurt, uh, and, but like all real shallow, like just, you know, nothing like, you know, buddies or anything like that. Um, and they, but they went and they recorded, uh, they didn't, they never, they recorded, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, the, the main record with Butch Vig and all that. So a lot of their stuff really wasn't necessarily around, at least the, the people that the group of, they were a little bit on the outside of say the Pearl Jam camp or the Soundgarden camp, but yet they all knew each other. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like a different click. Kind of. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I, uh, you know, living right here in Madison, I, I know that, uh, 
Um, you know, we have our little claim to fame is having smart studios here and working with Butch right. and everything. And um, I guess, you know, really, you know, I, I knew that they had been through here and working with Smashing Pumpkins as well. So um, it was just kind of like, well, you never really put Madison and grunge scene together in the same sentence. It's you know, always Seattle. So I guess you never really yeah, thought about yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, a lot of that was all created by press, you know, Yeah. for lack of... Um, a terminology to use for whatever. I mean, I don't think anybody in Seattle at the time ever went under the name used or thought about the term grudge, you know, that was not. And then, it, then it just became a blanket term. Gotcha. Yeah. You always have to come up with the, the theme after it's happened. Cause no one knows how to define that point in time. It's when it's happening. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, to me, there was like one or two sub hop bands that were kind of what I would have thought grunge. And then it just kind of, encompassed anybody who came out of seattle that was playing hard rock you know <laughs> it could be <laughs> i mean because when i heard pearl jam's demos when they were coming in you know pre calling themselves pearl jam i was like wow this sounds like bad company or something to me i was like wow they're going totally different direction than everybody else was going and there was like a real before that that late 80s before it turned 90s um there was a very heavy influence from like the la sound guns and roses stuff not not the, so much like well yeah even the glam stuff um until but there's also a very punk rock scene in the northwest so when that started like kind of combining and also the metal and stuff that i'd come out of combining with punk it was like this everybody's trying like i said there's a real few years where everybody was searching and blending sounds and then it kind of came out what it did and uh, but really after because there was a group of bands got signed to big deals at the same time and did well they had it just got blanketed that's grunge you know one one press guy one reporter tagged the name and it stuck oh God. of course it's a, me, me, a media thing <laughs> it is it was absolutely a media thing you know so did most of uh like a lot of this influential stuff happen you said it happened mostly while you were at london bridge did you have any carryover when you switched to like star lodge entertainment at all or no, by the time I did that, you know, that was me going out on my own. You know, I was like ready to, uh, you know, do my own thing. So actually one of the records that, or one of the bands that helped me kind of do that was work, starting working with Greg Dooley from the Afghan Wigs and his side project, Twilight Singers. Um, and then I just did all kinds of stuff in LA. Uh, I got to do a band in Detroit. You know, I started getting gigs outside of Seattle. And um, so that was good for me, you know, and I would just... But it wasn't so much, yeah, I didn't really carry over too much with Seattle stuff, you know. Um, as they got bigger, you know, as that kind of thing happens, when certain bands get bigger like that, they end up being in their own world. You don't even see them in their hometown anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. They're um, So kind of, just you know, you just go on with life kind of thing. We, we say that about garbage, you know. Butch, Butch and garbage started here, and we, we see them very rarely. So. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, it's like, you just, you know, it's like, I actually, I lived in Los Angeles for a while and I would see Jerry Cantrell from Alice more there. I got to know him better there than working on the records and, and living <laughs> in Seattle. And even though I was friends with him there, uh, it just, we ended up seeing, it's like funny. It's like, you know, it's just cause it was, when, you know, once that whirlwind picks you up, you're not hanging around, you're touring, you're doing this, you're doing that. And so yeah not your typical nine to five job that's for sure right you know you're gone you're not you know and if you're home you're probably hiding out so yeah <laughs> so you said star lodge was actually your first um owned 
studio? Yeah, it was basically my production company. And then I built, well, it, it had moved around a bit. I had some different versions of it at different places. Um, but uh, yeah, I ran that. Uh, God, I think I closed that about five, six years ago. Um, and yeah, it was like, I was kind of, you know, it was getting stagnant. It was doing a lot, a lot of bands. Um, Seattle, but it was like, right at this period where the industry was kind of, I don't know, you know, it was like, there was no budgets. Nobody could really, you know, people were finding it really getting into recording themselves. There wasn't a big movement necessarily going on. Still a lot of bands in Seattle, but, uh, you know, small stuff. And it was just like, I don't know, it was starting to become a burnout basically and not really worth the place and time for a change. So I just kind of said, yeah, I was like, I'm just going to, stall it for a while so we i just kind of put that on hold and then just had some other family issues things like that and like all right i'm taking a, a bit of a break i never really go away but you know i just closed the studio for a while and just did side things and worked out of different places did some of my own writing uh, some soundtrack stuff things like that cool yeah so and then it uh, looks like right about the time that you know you kind of closed that up and like you said you're kind of doing your own thing for a bit you um had recently relocated to pittsburgh how's that been it's been really good uh it was a perfect choice um had no idea it would be really kind of thought i have no idea how this is gonna <laughs> pan out my, my wife's from here and so it was kind of a you know, let's try Pittsburgh. Seattle kind of runs course for me. And, you know, my mother had passed away and things like that. So it was time to like, you know, it's like, man, I don't want, you know, it's time to go somewhere else. So came out to Pittsburgh, which has been, was cool, but musically, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was like, well, let's just, I don't know. I'm, I don't know what I might be doing. And, um, so no plans at all. So it was a bit, a bit, freaky you know i was like well but i was just keeping an open mind like oh maybe i'll maybe we'll be stuck in new york i'm not too far from new york or something you know i didn't even know and um so uh with that fresh plate all of a sudden i end up um meeting uh liz berlin um and her husband mike and liz berlin is um was a founding member of a band called rusted root who they had a big hit in the 90s and had quite a bit of success worked with some huge producers um and they had opened up uh, a theater here called Mr. Smalls, which has been really successful for about 15, maybe 17 years. Here in Pittsburgh, it's like the main theater that every touring act comes through. Um, so they're kind of, and they also owned a, another recording studio in the other side of town. And they're like the the musical, you know, they're, they're Pittsburgh's music scene. It's them, you know, they kind of run the town with that. And meeting meeting them, we got along really well. and uh turned out we were both had some success in the 90s and talking about that and they invited me over to um so the their theater mr smalls is a church it's an old church converted into this beautiful live mm -hmm. venue really cool they did an excellent job on it and across the street there's another church like literally across the street which they got as well due to the borough i don't know it was closed and they offered it to him and they said oh you should check out or the place and i walked over there with them and there's a trident tsm giant big 40 input trident sitting in there and i'm like what's this all about you know <laughs> and they're like well we thought you might be interested in this I'm like, yeah what are you guys doing here I'm like, well i just got this and i'm i'm was planning on turning this into a studio and i'm like really well i'd love to talk to you more about that so all of a sudden my wheels started turning and uh 
so we kind of partnered up and I brought out um, the two inch studio machine that we had at London Bridge that recorded all those great records, Project Ten, Soundgarden, Blind Melon, Screaming Trees, you name it. Um, history on it is pretty deep. Uh, I obtained from the owner and had it shipped out here. So I brought, put that in the studio and then we just started up to getting stuff and certain things just organically got offered to us. Or um, We have a one-inch Studer tube C37 tape machine, which has got a ton of history. And we all of a sudden were building this analog tape mecca in, in this place. Um, and, you know, not necessarily become a commercial studio, but just like a place where we wanted to uh, um, do it our way and like blend, you know, we have a great Pro Tools rig, of course, and all that. But when having this, you know, the room of, of a church um, was uh, epic, you know, and the stained glass and all this. So it just started evolving that we just kind of wanted to make this dream studio that we would want to have and um so that's what we've been doing and uh and it's it's looking great and we've been starting to record and we've got some future artists that we're going to develop out of there and so it's it's just been a, a lucky situation that i kind of fell into that sounds phenomenal i just yeah i just uh how do you the one thing i have to ask though is how are the acoustics in the church they're amazing i mean really we, we well we were able you know because we were could do really what we want and and mike had had such experience uh redoing the other church with, as a live theater he you know he knows now what he's doing construction wise and and whatnot um so we were we built a um he built i should say a really big control room so our control room is huge and which is really which is cool so you can really hang out in the control room and it's got a really cool vibe but then when it's sunny out and the light's coming through the stained glass just very cool vibe and then the out the uh the altar areas kind of turned into a stage and then you got this big room so generally speaking you can get all that acoustics if you want from that room but really just being up on stage and even mike's not even that far out it's pretty live but then there's some nice very good size uh iso rooms too where we can put drums in there as well so we just kind of all kinds of options gotcha so a lot is the i was going to say the the, the, I'm just picturing a church trying to put that in there. So is, do you do a lot more like um, more group recordings or like live recordings? Cause then it kind of sounds more like a live room than it does. a. a dead well, room. no, it's a live room for sure, but there's good sized. Isol- well, there are isolation rooms, other rooms that we've made okay. big enough to put a, you can put a kit and abandon those as well, but they're way smaller. So we can, you have all kinds of options. Gotcha. I was like, wow, how do you, that just, I, I mean, I think I was just floored by that. I'm like, I, I know what a typical studio looks like, but that's cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it gives a whole vibe. I mean, the whole thing is amazing, you know? Um, and you know, it's cool that they have the, uh, history and, and the know-how from the other church and not to mention that's what's the locations are cool because we're across the street from, um, the live venue, which is, you know, every night there's some, big show going on there so there's bands coming through town so it's really nice to be able to you know hey would you like to see the studio you know so that's been a cool thing and we're, as we get along we're going to do uh some kind of we're starting to plan future events like vip shows there or, or fan shows you know what i mean like acoustic things or whatever that um touring acts can come and do and we could record it as well or whatnot so it's kind of like it's like our, it, I wouldn't say it's a private studio, 
because it's not, but we get to kind of cherry pick and do what we don't want to do and um, the acts we want to do. And, 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 and the whole goal is to do records like we used to do them when there was like, when I was doing records in the nineties where there was a budget and you took six weeks lockout time and you were recording to tape and, and, you know, really doing it instead of where it was, we've got to get these, you know, songs done and, couple of days because nobody's got any money and let's just do the pro tools it's quicker you know we're trying to do it more um classic style and be able to produce it that way and and it's funny um we're kind of talking about how it's different these days so now artists who have done that enjoy that it's like that's cool we can do it again like this and make records that were timeless because a lot of timeless records were made like that and now like newer bands like kind of we've done a few little things um and they're not used to that. They're like, you know, should we, you know, they're not, they never had that luxury of being able to, to, not to mention just working with tape alone is a different workflow anyway. So, you know, it's been fun to do that. How do the younger uh, bands typically respond to um, something like this where they could either choose to do it on the cheap at home on themselves or, you know, take this and make this an experience, which is totally out of their norm. Well, I mean, I think it's really exciting. I think that's, you know, it, I mean, I know for me, how, I mean, that's something that, well, like you said, you know, the word experience, it's, it's an experience and you, mm-hmm. you really feel like you're in there to make a piece of art, you know, you know, it's a re, it's a whole different way of going at it. Um, and, you know, it makes you, I think it changes your whole attitude, how you, how you uh, appreciate what you're doing and, and the art of it and you put more, it feels real to you, you know, and and even when you're hit, listening back on tape for whatever reason, it feels real. It sounds like you're making a real record, you know. And that's and that's my favorite quote I'll get from people is that, um, man, it sounds like a record now, you know, for coming <laughs> off tape. And whatever that means, I just love it when people say that. Well, maybe you're onto something because I know a lot of people are kind of going back to the vinyl era and it's like, well, maybe you can get all of the authentic hissing and popping back, you know, going back to analog recordings. I mean, yeah, there's that, there is that. And there's a lot of those, um, you know, uh, catchphrases that you'll hear. It's warm. And it's just adjectives mm. that kind of after a while just kind of drive me crazy. It, <laughs> it's become generic, generic, uh, you know, words to use for these things. And to me, it's a lot, you know, with, with, and it's also been fun for us too, putting up these new, the machines after we fix them and refurbish them and listening to them. Cause for a while, you know, you start, I mean, me and, me and Mike will talk about that. We'll go, you know, like when we do hear it back or something, we go, God, you hear it. So it does sound different. That sounds better to you. Right. Like we'll just look, not even saying anything, just looking at each other. Cause you start wondering if you're just, um, fantasy or, or giving it, romancing it, you know, um, they're like, maybe in your mind, you thought it sounded better, but no, you hear it back and you're going, damn, there's something special about this. Why isn't everybody doing this again? Like, I swear <laughs> if everybody heard it next to each other, you would. And it's, it's, uh, so that's been cool. Just remembering, yeah, this is, this really is a thing. And you know, it's more, it's just because, I mean, a lot of it's, you know, scientifically if we want to talk about it that way it's tape going across heads i mean it's catching magnetic particles flying around there's no zeros and ones in a sample rate that's cutting it up into little pieces you know and that missing information somehow is there when you hear it back and i don't know something to it and it does change your workflow 
and how you do things. And I think it lends to like how it's more artistic, really. Yeah. Now, not to say that I love Pro Tools and use it every day and the speed, the edits and things you can do are, you know, so many great things about it and plugins and things like that. Um, and, it, and it is fun. Like for us, it's like, it's, it keeps it interesting because we can have a piece of outboard gear or something and then use a plugin and, and they both have their, their virtues, you know, sometimes it's cooler, sometimes it's not, sometimes plugins got, doesn't sound anything like what it's modeling, but it's still got a cool effect or sound to it. So it's, it just makes it more fun and interesting for us too as engineers. It's nice to hear like anybody explain how, how the difference between analog and digital is like this, because while I, I like to think I have a little bit better ear than most people, uh, you know, they're just like consumers. I'm a drummer. I don't usually listen to things too in depth to, uh, you know, like I almost can't tell apart analog and digital, but maybe if they were side by side, I don't maybe get that experience. That's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, um, <laughs> and, and that's the best part is when, when you have people, um, who don't think that or even a lay person who's just their friend of the bands or whatever and i'll go oh that sounds so good you know and they don't know why Uh it just there's something to it i don't know if it's a dna um memory (laughs) flashback or whatever (laughs) growing up but there is something to it and um you know obviously it's uh there's something to also being able to afford a cool um program that you can uh, you know a dog station you can have at home and you're young and you can do it. You can get all these ideas out that, you know, I didn't have that ability. You know, I had a four track. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That was amazing when I had a four track. I can believe that I could do this by myself. And so same with a computer. It's just, uh, it's kind of a shame that there's not that luxury um, just due to, you know, financially for, for people that they can't experience that. So in some ways we're happy and, and, and you know, we're lucky enough to have some of what of a career and been around and experienced that. And now we're in this position where we can kind of share it and do keep that alive. So for, like at my age and my, like I said, where we're at, it's a cool thing to do. Like it keeps it interesting for us and fun and, um, and, and hope and still be able to do, you know, we're hoping to have some really timeless records come out of there. Awesome. Yeah. I would be looking forward to seeing what you guys do now. How long have you been open now? Well, we just, uh, we've been kind of in, working as we're building kind of but really just this last few months have we really started recording so we right now we have a band called bear cub that we've been doing um they are being uh there he the, the guy uh jesse's originally from main, main singer songwriter he's originally from pittsburgh but uh was spent a lot of time in in uh, nashville last 10 years okay um moved down there and um but recently he's he just came back up here found out about us and and um i get uh, mike kind of knew them from their their pittsburgh friends and um the thing about him is he's worked with all these great people in nashville and it's just amazing singer songwriter type guy you know lyrics and pop hooks and just good stuff and um adam duritz from canning crows is a big fan of theirs and um yeah so they're getting this you know, real big push from him. Um, so they just came in to, um, we just were doing some songs for them to, they're going to go and play some shows with Cannon Crows um, next month, actually, in New York to play some big festival there. So Adam's kind of behind them and trying to, uh, you know, do something special for them, help them out. And so we, luckily, everything's been very organic. We haven't really looked 
for anything or done anything. Things have just been falling into place. Mm -hmm. And this was one of them. So, and so we're just, you know, doing it old school, doing it all on tape and going to mix it to tape the whole bit. So it's nice to hear that in in this age of internet and digital, it's nice to hear that. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. I mean, like, you know, we're not like, crazy about to where we don't utilize digital technology obviously yeah, yeah. great converters and thing i'm all over that too um you know a lot of my passion is about samplers and drum machines and synths and stuff so i got that whole side of me as well but um but it's been fun to, and i gotta say it was just one of those things i never thought would happen when we came out here i thought i was kind of maybe walking away from studio life and like maybe getting into other sides of production or whatever and now I'm in deeper than I ever would have have ever been. You know, it's like, oh, now I own like, now we have like, what, four tape machines. And, you know, we have three two-inch machines and the one-inch machine and a giant analog console the size of <laughs> Rhode Island. You know, it's like, holy cow, I thought I was done with that world. But Well, if you're like me, you don't normally say Pittsburgh equals music for the most part. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, they don't, you know, well, it's weird. It's, that's weird because there's definitely a ton of talented musicians here. And um, as in most cities, there's always, some, you know, but there, there's definitely a thing here. Um, but they've never had, you know, any, a lot of things break out of here. You know, Rusted Root, this band was one of their big heroes out of here. So um, outside of them, there hasn't been a lot, you know, here and there, I guess. But, but yet uh, it's, it's a, big little city you know so mm-hmm. um and it's got a lot of character and pittsburgh's very you know it's pretty much unlike any other city it's definitely unique um and so i don't know and and the positioning um between like nashville and new york and nashville like right now has been really busy and um seems like uh for whatever reason too same with the studio like a lot of things organically have been happening with me um just talking to a number of people in in nashville i did a uh uh talk down there uh, what was it october november um at chris mars place um studio 1979 which is, or i did a they have a tape summit every year um which is ironic right because i'm mm-hmm. just starting this studio and yeah. he had contacted me um about that because it was their 10th anniversary of doing this and they pick a record every year to uh uh you know focus on and it happened so they picked pearl jam 10 because it's their 10th year so they contacted me said would you like to come down and talk and um so i did a speak, a talk down there and it went great i met a ton of people i uh you know totally admire um engineers like fans Powell and you know uh, just tons of super talented people that i've never you know got to meet and i'm like man these guys are great and they're listening to me talk so i was very flattered um and then started making uh, all of a sudden all these different things started coming up with Nashville. So it's like somehow the universe sent me out this way. Uh-huh. So who would have guessed? When it happens for a reason, it's it's a good thing, yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm not fighting it. No, definitely. I know not. how it goes because you can definitely have your down periods. So I look at it as you know a gift, especially in the climate of the industry. It's not easy to be doing these things. So. No, I mean, it's still in such a state of flux right now. And it has been for, I think we're going on, what, 20 years here pretty soon? Yeah, right. <laughs> it has been like 20 years. It's hard. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I say that. And I think maybe it's just me thinking it's like 20 years at least now. No, I was coming out of high school when Napster hit. And I have it's like a stain on my history. I just know it's there. <laughs> yeah, 
things changed. Like, yeah. Really did change. Yeah. And that's what I was saying, like, with uh, during my running Star Lodge, like, it, I, you know, I, I was fighting, man. I did everything we could do to keep things going and keep it. But it was like, man, just couldn't get over a hump, you know? Mm-hmm. And we did a lot of cool records, a lot of cool uh, bands I produced uh, that just, you know, they just didn't get a fair sh- There wasn't anything. You know, they couldn't get past a certain spot, no matter how good the music was and how hard they were trying. Because there's just, you know, there was that uh, hierarchy. You know, you're either like the government type stuff. You're either in that 1% or <laughs> you were everybody else, you know? Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, this has been a great story and a lot of surprises. I, I'm glad you got to indulge in, uh, you know, what you're doing right now and everything. And, you know, of course, everyone loves to hear about the Seattle scene and some from different aspects and everything. So, um before we uh, sign off, though, I wanted to give you a chance to um, share your website or social media, places that you want to have people check you out, um, what, what kind of cool things you guys are doing in Pittsburgh now. Yeah, you can totally uh, follow me. Keep, keep, uh, I, I try to keep my website pretty uh, up to date. You know, I, It's not just like one thing where it's just that's it for the next 10 years. So I keep, <laughs> I keep reposting stuff and what's going on and links to everything else. So that's a Dave Hillis music.com so it's really easy it's just my name music stays host music at or dot com and um so that'll link up to anything else i'm on instagram as well just pretty much if you type my name in it comes okay. up so i'm easy to find and and um, we're gonna be you know as the spring and summer here comes on we'll be like promoting a lot a lot more social media stuff and uh, the products that we got lined up Awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, again, thank you for taking the time today. Um, it's been awesome getting to hear your story and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing it. Great. Well, I appreciate having me on and getting to talk about it. Thank you for listening to Behind the Backline, brought to you by Octave Media, an inbound marketing agency focused on helping music merchants develop an automated solution to increase website sales. You can find Octave Media at www.octave.media. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or Google Play Music to learn more about great products and companies in the musical instrument, pro audio, and event technology space. And be sure to leave a review to let us know what you thought of this episode. We encourage you to share us with your friends and colleagues via social media, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Hey guys, Matt here from Behind the Backline. I recently released a free on-demand training called Three Steps to Drumming Up More Website Sales. During the nine-minute video, you'll learn the secrets to streamline your brand's image and dramatically increase your website sales. If you're a music brand or a retailer and you want to increase your website sales, go to octave.media slash drumoffer today. That's octave.media slash drumoffer. And thanks for listening to Behind the Backline.